Welcome to Journal Spotting. Wondering how we have reached 2023? You are still the only one in the hospital who can do an LP overnight, half your patients have dementia with no cure, and people are still researching vitamin C? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that brings you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the General Spotters. Welcome back, listeners, to the very first roundup of 2023. It is wonderful to be back, although slightly lonely, as all my journal beavering colleagues are busy either, I don't know, saving the world, shoving springs into some blood vessels, or um, creating lifestyle clinics. Very varied. So tonight, you just have my dulcet tones. I am Dr. Barnaby Hirons, and I do hope you have all had splendid festive periods. Whilst very nice, mine was full of flu with six days of fever and lots of long napping. That said, I did take advice from our Christmas extravaganza. If you haven't heard it, go back and have a listen. We released it um, two episodes ago. Um, And on New Year's Day, I had a nearly nude swim in the south of England in the sea. It was delightful. And I've suddenly become a convert to cold water exposure. There we are. Today, I have an incredible lineup of articles for you, um, and these will include covering the, our key topic of dementia, and we're going to go through loads of the latest studies in preventing and treating the disease, which is, as you're sure you're aware, is on the rise. Then, in true journal spotting fashion, I'll somehow segue into other fascinating research, including why Vitamin C supplements in pregnant smokers may have, signif- may have significant benefits to their offspring's lung. And although this clearly seems a bit more like obstetrics than general medicine, it is of course relevant as protecting the lungs of children means less crappy lungs as adults. So win-win. Then finally, I'll put our case out for maybe, just maybe, you don't need to stick that big fat quinky needle into the back of your patient to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage if they have had a CT within 24 hours of onset of headache and it rules it out. But before I proceed with invigorating your minds, don't forget to rate, like and review us on all your podcast libraries, share us with your knowledge-hungry pals and get in touch via email or Twitter. Right, on with the show. Firstly, listeners, let's dive into a simmering pot of dementia articles which have recently come out. Dementia is finally receiving the attention it needs especially Alzheimer's, and some of the trials have actually been pretty exciting. I'll cover the protective role of correcting hearing loss, how what you eat matters, why blood pressure control is important, then go on to novel treatments including ketones and, of course, the big blockbuster of lecanemab. Right, so prevention, generally speaking, is better than cure, so let's check out the latest in this area. Diet. So diet is an important factor in the development of dementia, and it's known to be so. Indeed, increased intake of whole grains, vegetables, fruits, nuts and fish have all been linked to increased brain volume and decreased risk of cognitive decline over time. Bad diets, on the other hand, increase risk of obesity and diabetes and things like that and cardiovascular disease, which are all known risk factors for developing dementia. So what specifically of ultra-processed food? I mean, surely are those cheap and quick-acting calories will bolster your memory. Uh, This 
study, which is we're going to talk about, is was published in JAMA Neurology. And it was a multi-center Brazilian prospective cohort study of around 11,000 individuals. And they were aged between 35 and 74. So as you can see, starting fairly young. Changes in cognition were monitored by a series of simple questionnaires on average every three years. Ultra-processed food intake was characterized based on the proportion of daily calorie intake, intake it took up and put into quartiles. The lowest quartile obviously meaning they were the group which had the lowest intake of ultra-processed food. Average age of starting the study was 56 and the average follow-up was 8 years. Compared to those in the lowest quartile of ultra-processed food or UPF consumption, when put all together, any other level of UPF consumption was associated with a 28% faster rate of, co of cognitive decline and a 25% faster rate of executive function decline. So if you're in the lowest quartile, that was your sort of what they were comparing towards, you to, comparing you to, if you ate any other amount of UP, uh, ultra processed food, you had a faster rate of cognitive and executive function decline. However, Interestingly, memory itself did not appear to be affected by how much UPF you ate. Furthermore, higher intake of ultra-processed food or UPF before the age of 60 was associated with an increased rate of cognitive decline, but this was not apparent when you were older than 60. So if you're younger and you're eating lots of ultra-processed food, you're going to have a worse cognitive decline than if you're over 60 and eating this sort of food who knows why maybe because of the damage which has already been caused or the other factors finally there does appear to be a protective effect from eating an otherwise healthy diet those who had a generally healthy diet but still consumed a high amount of upf did not have the same high rate of cognitive decline so what does this mean? Yeah, sure, maybe you can keep on eating your fresh whole grain salad with ice cream for dessert, but be a bit cautious about it. I think it's really important to bear in mind with this study that at this study, it was based in Brazil, and overall, 30% of their daily calorie intake is from ultra-processed food. And whilst this may seem a little bit high that a third of it is ultra-processed, in the UK, 57% of our daily calorie intake is from UPF. So our rates are going to be much higher. UPF is bad. We know it's bad for so many factors. It also looks like it can be related to cognitive decline and dementia. What else? So what about hearing loss? I can't hear you shout. Um, hearing loss is a known risk factor for Alzheimer's. This may be due to a change in the structure and connections in the brain related to reduced sensory input. It may be related to social isolation and avoidance of these sorts of situations where you, you need to speak to people. Or possibly a reduction in cognitive load. So, you know, it's like, like your muscles um, and it's, the brain appears to live by this rule of either, either use it or lose it. So if you're not using your brain, you're not having the same cognitive load you're more likely to get dementia. So in short, keep your brain active, folks. Anyway, what is not so well known is whether correcting the hearing loss will reduce the risk of dementia. What I'm going to talk about is a systematic review and meta-analyses which were published in JAMA. It finally included 31 studies, the majority of which were observational, with over 137,000 participants. 
meta-analysis was performed on eight studies with a medium follow-up of two to 25 years. All studies agreed that correcting hearing loss reduced the risk of dementia. Compared to patients with uncorrected hearing loss, those with correction, such as cochlear implants, these sorts of things, they had a 19% lower risk of developing cognitive decline. That's a significant hazard ratio of 0.81. Some studies also looked at short-term benefits. And here, um, it looked like the use of hearing aids was associated with a 3% improvement in cognitive scores in the short term. So wearing them for long-term can reduce your risk of developing dementia and cognitive decline. Wearing them short-term can actually improve your cognitive scores. So lots of possible for better benefits. Uh, so what, whilst it seems obvious, if there is evidence of hearing loss in your patients or your family members, it's really important to treat it and improve or stop decline in cognitive function. Basically, it's a great excuse to badger your parents and patients um, to wear those hearing aids which they've got but they don't want to. Finally, one of the most studied topics imaginable, blood pressure control. The old dogma of well, that whoppingly high blood pressure is normal for their age, is out the window. We know very well that, even if old, sensible control of blood pressure has advantages and reduces cardiovascular risk. But what about dementia? Previous observational studies have shown a U-shaped response regarding BP control and dementia, indicating that too tight control can actually be a bit detrimental. A meta-analysis published in the European Heart Journal delved into this by only including randomized control trials and ignoring all observational data. Five trials were utilized with 28,000 participants and a median follow-up of 4.3 years. Treating hypertension with a mean systolic reduction of 10 millimeters Hg led to a 13% reduction in dementia diagnosis. That's an odds ratio of 0.87. The greater the reduction in blood pressure, the greater the reduced risk of dementia. Blood pressure is important and is important for reducing cardiovascular risk and incidence of dementia. Now, beyond treating the risk factors in dementia, what do we know about how we can actually treat dementia itself? What can we do when they've got that diagnosis? I think first it'll be worth discussing the use of ketones because this was new to me and I thought it was pretty interesting. There have been a bunch of studies and reviews of the use of ketones, mainly in Alzheimer's dementia, over the last few years. Um, and the way these, a lot of randomized controlled trials, where, where they've worked, is either through giving supplements or doing a ketogenic diet. And the most famous one of these is obviously Atkins. Um, but there are others like intermittent fasting, which can actually raise your ketones and be considered a ketogenic diet as well. I mean, all that sounds a bit bizarre, doesn't it? However, one of the ideas behind the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's is that there is intracerebral insulin resistance and that this is the thing which plays a big role in amyloid deposition, which I'm sure you're aware is an important finding in Alzheimer's. Ketones cross the blood-brain barrier, barrier pretty readily and they can actually provide an important alternative source of energy for the brain instead of glucose. So they've got really high insulin resistance in the brain. They need really high levels of glucose to give them energy, but ketones don't need that. They can provide an alternative source. So does inducing ketosis one way or another improve outcomes? Well, 
Diet studies have actually been pretty promising, but um, as a general rule, they're difficult in patients with dementia due to things like issues of weight loss, um, conforming with a diet, puts a lot of pressure on the carers who also have to go along with the diet. But benefits reported include improved cognition and quality of life scores. So overall, actually look quite promising. Supplement studies, including the use of medium chain triglycerides, and that's like things like MCT. And um, these are metabolized directly to, con- to ketones once consumed. And they've shown mixed but mostly beneficial results in cognition, memory, and ability to perform activities of daily living. And these are mainly over the longer term. On the downside, things like MCT are associated with quite a lot of gastrointestinal side effects. So the the dose they can give is usually limited. So most of these studies are small with some conflicting results. The biggest benefit appears to be in those with more mild disease. However, watch this space. Ketones may well be a useful adjunct for people with Alzheimer's, although they're not likely to cure it. But finally, the moment you've all been waiting for, or, well, at least curious about and have heard of, the new blockbusting treatment for dementia, lecanemab. And I'm not sure if I was even saying it right, but I'm going to stick with lecanemab. That sounds good to me. This phase three randomized control trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. 1,795 participants, all with mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's. Importantly, they all had evidence of amyloid on PET or in their CSF. So uh, as I mentioned, cerebral amyloid deposits are really highly associated with Alzheimer's. And what we know is that lecanemab is a humanized monoclonal antibody which binds to soluble amyloid beta protofibrils. Don't get too bogged down on it, but it binds to the amyloid um, and the idea is you're going to reduce it and improve the dementia or at least reduce it, slow its decline. That's the idea. It is important to note that the phase 2b trial of this drug showed no benefit um, compared to placebo at 12 months. However, when they followed the patients up, there was some benefit seen at 18 months, hence why they did a bigger, longer trial. The primary outcome for this phase three trial was the clinical dementia rating the CDR scale at 18 months. Over those 18 months, a lot of people on treatment suffered adverse events quite disappointingly. About a quarter had infusion site reactions and about one eighth had edema or effusions relating to areas of cerebral amyloid. So obviously that's intracerebral, which is far from ideal. That said, the treatment arm had a moderate and significantly better change in the CDR, that's the clinical dementia rating scale at 18 months, 1.2 with the canamab and 1.7 with placebo from a baseline of 3.2. So they all got a, a bit worse, but it seemed to reduce or slow the decline with the canamab. Then in a sub-study of about 700 patients in this, there were greater reductions in brain amyloid burden with the treatment arm compared to placebo. So they had a slower decline in cognition and evidence that the amyloid deposits in the brain were, were less. So a couple of ways it may have worked and be beneficial. What have we got? We've got a mild reduction in deterioration alongside a significant side effect profile. It doesn't actually sound that appetizing, does it? So 
why has this why has this study received such a big fanfare why is it all over the news why is everybody talking about it well i think it's crucial to realize that this is the first big win for a drug like this in alzheimer's many drugs before have come close to benefit but not really succeeded here we have a drug which works it's not going to be for everyone and it will not cure dementia however we have found a mechanism which seems to work to reduce cognitive decline. And really, what is going to be the biggest outcome of this, I suspect, is that pharmaceutical companies need this to encourage them to invest into new drugs. So watch this space. Even if lecanemab won't stem the rising tide of dementia cases in our populations, more drugs will come. And for that reason, this trial is a real game changer. Right, let's have a quick dementia roundup. Ultra-processed food is bad and ubiquitous. Add dementia to the numerous diseases which it is associated with and try and keep ultra-processed food to a minimum to save your brain and your patient's brain if you can keep it off their plates. Hearing loss is common and caused by multiple factors. Ensure your patients actually wear their hearing aids and perhaps telling them that it will significantly reduce their risk of developing dementia might be the push they need to actually wear them. Whilst the optimum blood pressure is hard to say, another reason to treat hypertension in the elderly is that it also reduces cognitive decline. And that's pretty important. And again, that may persuade them to take their antihypertension pills. Ketones and MCT have not reached the big time in dementia treatment and results are conflicting, but certainly intriguing and possibly beneficial in some populations. They may well be useful treatment adjuncts rather than a treatment by themselves. Finally, lecanemab, not the elixir of dementia, but it works, it's a good start, and maybe, just maybe, will open the door for a variety of monoclonal antibodies directed against amyloid. Right, kiddos, let us move swiftly and far away from the now exciting world of dementia prevention and treatment and get back to something which will help you out on your next on-call shift. I'm going to cover a classic issue, which we went over with um, Amy Burbridge. Now, that was back in episode 36. And really, the question is, when should you do an LP in suspected subarachnoid hemorrhage? To remind listeners, atraumatic, so that's not traumatic, subarachnoid hemorrhage is mostly due to bleeding from a ruptured aneurysm. And this needs urgent coiling by our ever so friendly neurosurgical colleagues who just love a call in the middle of the night. Other causes of subarachnoid hemorrhage tend to be rarer or more benign, including things like low-pressure perimesencephalic hemorrhage, arterial dissection, vascular malformations, or vasculitis. As subarachnoid hemorrhage mimics, migraines and other benign headaches are 50 times more common than subarachnoid hemorrhage. However, on the other side, subarachnoid hemorrhage is bad, with 50% dying within three months and 30% of survivors suffering really long-term awful disabilities. So we don't like to miss it if possible. And therefore, as medics, we do a lot of LPs, lumbar punctures. These are time-consuming, they prolong admission, they can be complex, they have risks including bleeding and worsening the headaches. And at the very least, they cause huge amounts of anxiety for patients and added stress for the medreg, who seems to be the only person in the hospital able to do them. So a landmark study in 2011 gave some relief. 
If a CT head was performed within six hours of onset, the sensitivity for ruling out subarachnoid hemorrhage was 100%. This was great news. Although many didn't quite believe it, and it, and it seemed most patients would arrive six hours and one minute after onset, and so ended up getting an LP anyway. However, the 2011 study was using old scanners dated back pre-2008. As you can imagine, or may well know, CT scanners have upgraded massively since then, including the use of modern multi-slice CT scanners. Might this affect how long you can wait and avoid an LP? The study I'll talk about was published in the BMG and it reported a retrospective single center analysis from between 2008 to 2017. 347 patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage, 260 of which were aneurysmal. I'll skip to the key take-home points from this and that is that a multi-slice CT performed within 24 hours of headache onset successfully ruled out an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage 100% of the time in 219 patients. At 48 hours, the sensitivity of a multi-slice CT in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage was 99.6% and 95.7% when including all causes of subarachnoid hemorrhage. Astute listeners may be brimming with questions such as, does it matter who reports on the scan? I mean, were they all specialist neuroradiologists in this study? And if actually you just get your your locum radiology registrar, is it going to be as good? And they don't go into a huge amount of detail about who reported them in the study. But we know it was a mixture of both general and neuroradiologists and that the hospital is a neurosurgical centre. It does not mean that the information is not generalisable, but it should be taken into account. I find these sorts of this sort of information really very helpful when discussing with patients. So they've come in, they've got a severe sudden onset headache, they've got a CT scan within 24 hours, and that is probably the majority of patients which um, present like this. The majority you do get a CT within 24 hours. You can tell them that previous studies ruled out subarachnoid hemorrhage a hundred percent of the time that migraines or benign causes are 50 times more likely than bleeding in the first place, and that LPs carry some risk and may even lead to things like false positive, positives which cause anxiety and numerous investigations which don't lead anywhere. With this sort of conversation, most will probably opt out of an invasive LP, thank you kindly, and I think I probably would. Massive caveat. If they've got a really, really barn door history and you can't think what else, then of course you might have to go down the LP route. Equally, if you think there might be something else going on, you know, you're missing some obvious encephalitis or something, then clearly there are other indications for LP as well. But I find this data really very reassuring. Okay, last one, last study before I bow out, listeners. And this one may seem a little bit off the usual journal spotting general in medicine theme, but I thought this article on vitamin C supplementation in pregnant smokers was fascinating. First thing to say is I was surprised by how many pregnant people continue to smoke. And I think this really just shows up my own naivety here. In the US, 
over 10% of pregnant women smoke, whilst the latest data in England is 9.1%. And that's actually down from 13% 10 years ago. However, the latest figures in Scotland are still 13% and Wales is close to this, but a little bit less. So I think what I'm trying to say is whilst it's really hard to stomach, and it's perhaps just testament to how hugely addictive from a psychological and physical aspect cigarettes are, and despite the wealth of information and evidence, some people will continue to smoke even when pregnant, and we have to accept that. Delving into the possible complications of smoking in pregnancy, aside from the myriad of badness it can cause to the mother, there is increased risk of infertility, miscarriage, stillbirth, preterm birth, placental abruption or previa, low birth weight, sudden infant death, and birth defects such as cleft lip. Relevant to the study I will discuss, we know the respiratory effects of smoking in pregnancy include impaired fetal lung development, decreased airway function and increased risk of wheeze and asthma in offspring. Whilst a sick child isn't ideal, a key problem here is that if the child does not reach their full lung volume potential, they are a much higher risk of lung problems in the future, especially diseases such as COPD. So it's relevant to you adult physicians, as well as your obstetric physicians, as well as your paediatricians. Accepting that some patients are not going to quit what can we do? We know that vitamin C during pregnancy appears to improve airway calibre in 12 months old from a previous randomised controlled trial. Well, what about more robust lung function tests later on? And what about a longer follow-up? So this multi-centre, double-blind randomised controlled trial published in JAMA Pediatrics recruited 251 pregnant ladies who continued to smoke. They were split one-to-one placebo or daily vitamin C, 500 milligrams throughout pregnancy. In the end, they had 196 children who provided spirometry at five years. The primary outcome was FEF 25 to 75, and that is the forced expiratory flow at 25 and 75% of the lung volume. FEF 25 to 75 is meant to be a more accurate marker of airflow obstruction in children compared to, say, the FEV1, which we use in adults. At five years, children in the vitamin C arm had 17.2% higher FEF 25 to 75, and higher is better, it means it's less or not obstructed, as well as significantly better FEV1 and a much lower incidence of reported wheezing with an odds ratio of 0.21. So at five-year-old, the chance of that child wheezing was about 21% um, in the treatment arm compared to those not treated. In summary, better lungs in those whose mum took vitamin C during pregnancy. Why is this? What on earth is going on? Well, as far as mechanisms, from primate studies, we know the key effect from cigarettes on the infant lung stems from the nicotine. And we think that the nicotine passes through the placenta, then acts on nicotinic receptors in the developing lung. It seems vitamin C somehow blocks the effect of nicotine on these fetal lungs. Um, this is perhaps why the study solely focuses on lung function. It doesn't mention any other outcomes such as miscarriage rates, deformities, that sort of thing. However, I suppose it clearly wasn't powered for these outcomes either. Now, this study did get me wondering, could vitamin C possibly be protective against other exposures, such as air pollution in pregnancy? But 
Unfortunately, based on the theory that the issues with lung development relate to nicotine and nicotinic receptors, it probably won't help against other exposures. But I think watch this space because vitamin C has other possible benefits, not in sepsis, as I'm sure you all will be aware if you listen to our previous episodes. Um, and it does overall opens the door for other potentially protective interventions during pregnancy, which I think is really interesting. If this area is something you're interested in, listen out to our next Climate Zone episode, which is an interview with the wonderful Professor Kathy Thornton, who is an expert on the effect of air pollution in pregnancy, and I will ask her opinion on the vitamin C story too. Now, I can't say I see many pregnant ladies, and even less that actually smoke. However, if I do, I will be recommending vitamin C supplements based on this study especially early in pregnancy, as this appears to be when the benefits were greatest in this cohort. Right? That is it, my jolly journal junkies. Apologies I was going solo today, but I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. Remember, cut out ultra-processed food, wear hearing aids and treat blood pressure to reduce the risk of dementia. Then watch this space for novel treatments making their way to your, your patients. Be rest assured that probably you don't need to do an LP if you have a CT head within 24 hours of headache onset and it's ruled out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. But make sure you speak to your patient and get a really good history. Finally, stop your pregnant patient smoking. 10% is too high. But if they bloody won't, a simple vitamin C tablet might just significantly benefit their future children. Finally, be careful, listeners. And if you can't be careful, have fun. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host, Dr. Barnaby Hirons. Information and links from the show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com or on Twitter. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.